It's Thursday, May 25th, 2023. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Polk Runyon. And tonight we will review and discuss the alchemical search for the unified field, 2023, by Masonic author Richard Kretz. This remarkable book is as magical as it is alchemical. And the author teaches us how to create the Philosopher's Stone within ourselves using the hermetic elements and the electric network of the human nervous system. He draws on ancient Greek Pythagorean math and geometry, arriving at a full seven-chakra hermetic yoga arrangement on the Kabbalistic tree of life that is nearly identical to the one we use. His cross-cultural training is in Native American shamanism, and his accounts of his apprenticeship under a modern shaman form one of the most moving and enlightening parts of the book. So, if you'd like to learn the secrets of alchemy, tune in and meet a master of the art. Okay. Richard, you're right there. I'm okay, here. Good. Okay. And we'll get right into the book. Now, you've divided the book into three parts. Part one is called The Bell, and um, part two is the book, and part three is The Candle. I'm kind of wondering, in a way, whether you were influenced by that old movie, Bell, Book, and Candle, you know, with Jimmy Stewart and Nat Kim Novak. Do you remember that one? Oh, yes, most definitely. Of course, that that was a, a small factor that I, I considered. In the first part of the book, The Bell, you you start off with the order, where the first chapter is the order of Ophiuchus. Now, this fascinating because Ophiuchus is, of course, an astrological constellation. It's not part of the zodiac, but a lot of people think it ought to be. And it's sometimes kind of referred to in, in magical or in mystical circles as the 13th constellation. And it is a man holding a serpent, and the serpent extends, I think, about a third of the way around the celestial sphere. One of the reasons why I'm fascinated by this is because in the work that I've done, the celestial uh, zodiac and the planets are the macrocosm and the microcosm. Talk to us a little bit about the order of Ophiuchus and how you came up with this and the significance of it. Well, with, uh, I, I refer to it as Ophicus, but Ophiuchus is fine. And I found it interesting because he would actually be like the 13th constellation within the astrological house. And 13 is a very significant number. Uh, if you're looking at it numerically, you could say, okay, 13 is 1 plus 3 is 4. Uh, 4 represents stability. Uh, we can also go back and reflect on 13 being uh, a, 12 jurors and a judge. We've got Jesus and the 12 apostles. There, there's numerous examples of 13. And when we're looking at Ophiuchus in, in the night sky, he peaks around the summer solstice. And surrounding him are other serpent-oriented constellations. So that got me to thinking about a number of things. You know, Asclepius, uh, for one, and his interaction uh, Hercules and, of course, his 12 labors uh, includes, you know, the Hydra and uh, some other serpents. 
And then we've got APEP within the Egyptian uh, pantheon. So, you know, all of these things, you know, are a factor. And when we move that forward, we can also look at Delphi and the serpent that, you know, was guarding Delphi at, at that point in time. So, yeah, Ophicus or Ophiuchus, I felt, was very important. And, you know, that that's why, you know, I begin with the address of it. The next uh, section here, we have the Apollo Parnassus connection. And uh, I, I want to mention another kind of a film connection, you know, just to kind of tie this in with what our listeners are, you know, familiar with and, and what resonates with them. You've seen the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, haven't you? Yes. Oh, yeah, that's one of my favorite films. And uh, Parnassus, the mountain Parnassus, is the Greek version of the of Mount Ararat, where the Greek version of of Noah's Ark and Noah came down and and rested after the Great Flood. And it also, as you point out, it also is the place where the the Oracle of Delphi had had her temple. Would you like to tell us a little bit about how you came up with this? Parnassus, you know, is I think overshadowed by Mount Olympus because folks associate the Greek pantheon with Mount Olympus. But Mount Parnassus factors heavily into it when you begin looking at, if you delve into the Greek mythology, because it's got those twin peaks, and it looks like actually a double A because of the snow-capped peaks on there. And I think those were inspirational to both uh, Dr. John Dee and Francis Bacon when they were considering, you know, the roots of ancient, you know, of Freemasonry, uh, Templary, and especially Rosicrucianism. They were very inspirational. And that's where you, you look at, you find Artemis or Diana, and when Bacon formed the, uh, the Order of the Helmet, it was based on Artemis and the use of the helm of invisibility given to her by Hermes, I believe it was, and they referred to themselves as the invisible. So we have a tie-in there uh, with Rosicrucianism, and you know, of course, you know, as head as, as the titular head of that organization, Bacon referred to himself as Apollo, and Apollo was very important because he was, of course, you know, the god of the sun. He rode his chariot across the sky from the east to the west. And we can really delve into some pretty deep stuff here, but I, I think that's enough to give you a little bit of a flavor for it. Yeah. Yeah, well, moving right along here in the book, um, on page 22, you've got uh, one of my favorite mystical set of symbols, and that's the platonic solids. And the platonic solids, you know, the tetrahedron, the cube, uh, the octahedron, the dodecahedron, these, of course, uh, we find come from the Timaeus, and the Timaeus is uh, is one of the you know one of one of the major sources of Western esoteric uh, symbolism. And uh, I'd like to mention that the octahedron, that's the double four-sided pyramid, that has eight sides, and uh, we made a discovery some time back that. The the octahedron was identical in nature with uh, with, with fluorite crystals. Uh, from that we derived the idea that the urim the urim and the thulim 
were, you know, the jewels on the breastplate of the, of the uh, high priest in ancient Israel were quite possibly natural octahedrons. And I don't know whether you've heard about that. We published that one. Anyway, um, do you have any thought about linking the uh, platonic solids with the psychic centers, the chakras? Well, that's a very good question. I I haven't looked at it in that regard. I'm fairly confident that there is a connection. What I have done, though, is made a connection of the platonic solids with the actual philosopher's stone. Uh, It's very integral, uh, an integral part of the philosopher's stone. I only discuss really one portion of it uh, in my book, you know, the the search for the uh, chemical search for the unified field. And that has to do with uh, the meditation. But when we extrapolate it out, when you're looking at a two-dimensional model of the Philosopher's Stone, you know, you've got basically a seal of Solomon. You've got the hexagram that's encircled within a cube, within a triangle that is also encircled. But if you uh, extrapolate that out as a three-dimensional model, you find very clearly that it's the platonic solids. And with those platonic solids, as you mentioned, uh, you find it in crystalline forms. You also find it, and that's why, you know, part of alchemy, because of those forms, discusses the transmutation of lead into gold, uh, which is plausible, but it's not really practical. Really what they were doing was refining galena, which is a lead ore, and contains impurities and extracting the silver and gold from that uh, because galena actually uh, contains that's it's a primary source of silver but we can move forward with that and we can look at those models as a means for panspermia which is again part of the uh, philosopher's stone within the elixir of life because it represents a mathematical virology uh, model of a biophagous organism or a bacteriophage, also known as a marine phage, which are introduced from to Earth as organic space matter. And they were the most abundant DNA replicating agent in the primordial soup for the evolution of life on Earth. And then from there, you know, you can say, okay, well, if you get into the one-inch theory, which is, you know, the tension times the length, equals mc squared which they both equal e or your energy and it provides an argument for first cause the other thing is again in in my book that we're talking about this evening it's a vehicle to attain a higher consciousness and the generation of photons or light through meditation the other thing that we can also find these platonic solids used for is a quantum model for travel within the space-time continuum. Um, so, I mean, there are many, many applications to it. It's a very simple and beautiful model, you know, using sacred geometry that has so many applications. And I hope I haven't gone on too far with that and gotten too deep. No, I don't think you have. Yeah, actually, you're quoting Hermes in here when, you, when you're talking about uh, the speed of thought. Because, uh, yes. you know, Hermes Trismegistus said uh, said that you can travel anywhere in the universe at the speed of thought. 
I thought that was pretty cool because, you know, we, we all, uh, often discuss, well, what is the speed of light? And, of course, we, we have that nailed down pretty good. But the question that has remained unanswered is, what is the speed of thought? It, it's a pretty broad question. Well, you do quite a bit with, uh, with the four hermetic elements. And, and I think everybody knows what they are, earth, fire, water. And, of course, the, all of this got start, started with, who was the guy that, ju- that jumped in Mount Etna and all they ever found was a, was a sandal? Oh, my and goodness. He, yeah, he's the, yeah, he's the one who said, he said, everything is air, earth, fire, water, love, and strife. That's the whole universe. But nobody believed him, so he, he jumped in, he jumped in Mount Etna and, and and uh, and all they ever found was one sandal. But anyway, um, moving right along, in your chapter of the Philosopher's Stone, you're going to create or setting out to create the Philosopher's Stone inside inside the human body. And um, that this, of course, naturally is uh, going to be using that uh, that wonderful quality we call proprioception. You know, getting inside yourself, getting to know your organs, or helping to heal them, or whatever. You know, like uh, this one Taoist alchemist said, "When's the last time you visited your liver?" You know, and <laughs> but uh, you talk about. Uh, you know the body being being ninety percent water and and the the relation of the four elements, uh, the hermetic elements and and of course you point out the alchemical transformation of those four uh, pr- primordial elements. It really isn't chemistry. It's it's well, it's a, more of an atomic transformation. You want to talk a little bit about that, the four elements? Sure. Okay, um, to touch on what you were, were mentioning there, I was thinking again about Delphi. And over the the door of the Temple of Delphi, you have an epsilon. And, you know, the one of the, the rules about epsilon is the saying, know thyself. And that's really what alchemy in the spiritual aspect of it is about, knowing yourself. So we were looking at it with regard to, okay, well, what are the elements that we need to address in order to do that, to to know who we are? So, yeah, we have to understand, okay, well, what's the fire? The fire within us happens to be, you know, our passions. You know, it's the blood because we get our blood boiling when we get very passionate. And that refers to our heart. So the heart would be... Uh, an example of the fire. You know, water would be to cool your heels. And that means to, you know, take a step back, you know, be a little bit more thoughtful. You know, the air, well, we use the expression, you know, okay, we're an airhead. In other words, it refers to the aether and, you know, the space that's above and beyond us, you know, that we can't really grasp, uh, we can't see or, or really touch. And then, of course, you know, we say to ourselves, okay, we need to be grounded, and that refers to the earth, you know, having our feet on the ground, or if we're meditating, sitting on the ground and having contact so that we are actually physically grounded just like an electrical system. So that should offer you a segue into the next question I bet you're going to ask. What do you think I want to ask? 
about the body as an electrical system. (laughs) What? Okay, um, because one of the things I write about is that, you know, when we're talking about the Philosopher's Stone, you know, as the body, we're looking at the red stone and the white stone. The red stone, of course, refers to the heart. The white stone refers to the mind or the brain. And with those things in mind, you know, okay, how does this whole thing operate? It's uh, it's operating as an, an electrical system. You know, so that's our nervous system, basically. Our nervous system is nothing but the wires of an electrical system that go throughout our body. And we have negative, we have positive, and then, of course, we have neutral. So this reflects back to the universal laws of, you know, of gender, basically, and correspondence. So, you know, we have to make sure that we are properly grounded for that electrical system, for our body to function correctly. That's why when we meditate, it's always best to sit directly on the ground instead of sitting in a chair and, you know, remove your shoes if you can. Uh, Because if you have something on, for example, if you're sitting on a cushion, if you have your shoes on, you're insulating yourself and therefore you're not having conductivity of your body with the actual ground. We need to be grounded to the earth for our body to function correctly. There are a lot of magicians who would very, very much agree with you. In fact, uh, one of them that I know of likes to go out in the woods and actually do actually do Renaissance-type ceremonial magic in the deep woods. I don't quite want to want to have to have to haul a double cue water and a, and a triangle and a, and then a, and a hard circle and everything out in the woods. But uh, we've done it before. But but uh, but I think I think they're right. I, I think original ceremonial magic I think was campfire magic. I think I, the uh, the spirits were the were the animals that that you saw outside the campfire. You know, you see the bright eyes of the animals outside the campfire. I think that may be the origin of of ceremonial magic. Anyway, I want to point out though that your book is filled with beautiful, beautiful illustrations, and this is very is very well published on high top paper and beautiful reproductions both of ancient manuscripts, ancient manuscripts like Atlantic Pugians and, and all, but a lot of diagrams describing what you're, what you're pointing out. And I'm just looking, looking here at uh, page 76 with the carbon, diamond, cell, crystal, air, and oxygen, fire, fire and hydrogen, earth is carbon and graphite. And you have this, this is figure 6.7, a model of the philosopher's stone. And really, I want to encourage uh, listeners to get a copy of your book because the illustrations alone are are, are worth the whole book. But then, of course, the text naturally explains them, and it's wonderful. Your illustrations of the, of the circulatory system and of the nervous system, and here and I'm got on page 82. You've got the circulatory system. You got a real nice layout of that, and then uh, you, you've got the skull and the uh, and all the the neurons going down the vertebrae and everything. And this, this is really a beautiful book. And also, too, I I think we should mention that you have connected your symbolism to to the Masonic pillars 
and to the to the tree of life and the Kabbalistic tree of life. This is where where I was really surprised when I when I first looked at it. I looked at the, I looked at the tree of life. Yeah, and you've got all the all the planets uh, just just as they were as they were attributed in the Zohar and and, and all, but but they're in the order. The planets are in 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 the Dante-esque order, in the Western the Western order. When you outline your your uh, psychic center system or your chakra system, the seven chakras, you have them in the Western order, which is what we have in Hermetic Yoga. This is really remarkable. You arrived at this apparently through your own, because we we were talking about this earlier. You arrived at this from your own, uh, you know, reasoning and and uh, your your interpretation of the Kabbalah. And we had to, we had to go back and and get it out of you know get it from Robert Flood and and uh, and, and uh, Jacob Borum and Johann Gichtel and all these uh, all these these people back in the rent. We we had to der- derive it from there to convince ourselves what we should have known, what you already realized, just in studying the Kabbalah. And uh, so I think. I think I think in a way you kind of put us to shame. We 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 had we didn't even believe our own Kabbalah. We had to go back and and get all these old Germans and and Robert Flood and all these people to to convince us. When you want to talk about uh, about your uh, producers here with the planets on the on the tree of life. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I would like to thank you. You're 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 very kind. I've been working on this for probably 20 years, and I, I just use what logic and common sense dictates. I have a background in electronics, so that that helps. But for the most part, Poke, I work in a vacuum. I don't have anyone to share these ideas with because it zooms over their head like a space shuttle, and I get a deer in the headlight look, you know, like, what's he talking about? <laughs> so... Yeah, you know, most of this work and I'm sure you've been down that road. So, you know, most of the work that I do is reclusive. I don't have anyone to talk to about it because there are so few that really comprehend it and have a good grasp of it. So, you know, it's up to me to figure it out. But it it all starts with having the courage to ask questions. And I can't emphasize that enough, you know, is to ask questions and pursue the answers to the best of your ability. Don't accept what others tell you. Uh, You know, you have to go out and perform your own investigations and make informed opinions. And really, that's what being a heretic is all about. But I forgot what the question was, so if you would uh, remind me, then I, I can address it. I just, I just, I just wanted you to comment on on your lightning flash down the chakras or down the spheres of the tree of life, and oh, and, okay. uh, and say what you what you've done is you uh, you have done the same thing we did. You straightened out the lightning flash, and and well, uh, or, what, or or what's yeah. sometimes called the flaming sword. You straightened it out, and you you've got a straight line ch- chakra system, which is in the same order as the sphere of Sarabosco or or Dante 
Uh, it's the Western system. Frankly, I think, and you, I, you, you probably agree with. I think this thing came a long time before the Eastern system. The Eastern system, for instance, they put Mars in the genitals, and and uh, we put the Moon in the genitals. Uh, and that isn't just deference to deference to the female. That uh, that's where it belongs. And like I said, we came up with this by the seat of our pants. Way back in 1970, when we we started initiating people, uh, because it was not it was nice and natural, and it was the way to do it, the, the way to do it. And of course, I got to paint the uh, psychic centers on, on the high priestesses, and so that was a lot of fun. But anyway, well, we knew it, but we didn't know it. We weren't sure, so we had we had to go in order to validate what what we should have we should have just realized and and did realize, and in a practical sense. We had to go and research all these old Germans like Jacob Borm and and Gicko and all this and 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 you you came up with the you you realized it just common sense you realized the Western system and the music of the spheres and and that's why I, I kind of wanted you to comment on on the lightning flash idea uh, the lightning flash coming down the tree of life right well to yeah. be honest with you for me it was kind of serendipitous. You know, I got looking at the caduceus and, you know, how you've got the serpents that are intertwined on it, and I accidentally placed it over top of, you know, a man that was in the meditation position that I had the chakras outlined on. And I looked at that, and I said, my goodness, that makes a lot of sense. That's got to be it, you know. Like I said, that was serendipity, and it it shows the the various polarities between the male and the female, and how they intertwine going up the caduceus, and then the center pole there are your your uh, the ganglia within you know the the central nervous system that are your neutral ground, and it it just kind of happened by accident, and it made sense so. You know, sometimes, you know, we just have to listen to our gut and go with the flow, uh, you know, and not ask why, just do it. Yeah, that certainly is true. And like I say, we, we should, we, we had it, we had it originally, but then we had to go and do all kinds of uh, research to, to validate what, what we already, what we already should have known by common sense. Anyway, uh, in the thir- third, the third part of your book, The Candle. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah. You're you're getting into your cross. Uh, what what I refer to as your cross training. Every magician, Western magician, should cross train in another culture. And in my case, it was it was Tibetan, and I was lucky enough to be able to study with them. And and in your case, you you actually apprenticed yourself to a real real Native American shaman and that that was a treasure and the last part of your book the making of a shaman you you recount your uh, your journeys and your and your learnings uh, with with Charles the uh, the Native American shaman and this I think is as I said in the abstract this is Probably the most moving and emotional part of the book, and and I I really really enjoyed it, and and especially that initiation experience on in the equinox going up the mountain, you know, <laughs> you know when when you're when you're going blindfold 
through a nest of rattlesnakes. <laughs> There's one of my initiates, Lady Joe Carson. If you're listening tonight, uh, Lady Joe, you remember when you were sitting on that old rusty uh, Corvair out in the woods in Topanga, and then uh, we had you in bondage and solitude, and and something crawled across your across your feet, and that this the, you will you will particularly like reading. Uh, uh, reading about uh, Charles leading Richard Richard through the, the nest of rattlesnakes uh, in the equinox, the equinox on the mountain. You want to talk a little bit, a little bit about that? Yeah, Charles. He was a very special human being. Um, you know, here it is. It's almost 20 years since his passing, and still, you know, he's with me. Uh, his spirit and those of, that came before him, you know, once he passed, you know, they came into me and I'm still learning, you know, lessons on a very regular day, basis of things that he is teaching me, you know, to this day. One of the interesting things, you, you were talking about the, the rattlesnakes at the equinox. There are many things that, you know, are taught and really what it is is you are learning to be, get in touch with yourself and to trust yourself, you know, to be able to see with your mind more than with your eyes, to see with your heart more than with your eyes. In that way, you're more in tune with the world around you. But, you know, there are some interesting stories that uh, I, I related in there, and one of the early ones was uh, when Charles and I were up on the mountain one day, and we're hiking around, and in the middle of nowhere, and there's uh, we're high up, and there's nothing but rocks and brush, and he takes a stick and he points at this rock, and I mean there's hundreds of rocks everywhere, and he says there's a snake under that rock, and I would like to speak with him. You know, here I am, yep out in the middle of nowhere, rocks everywhere, and he's telling me there's a snake under this one rock. Right, you know? And so I did as he asked, and I lifted the rock up, and there was a small rattlesnake under it, a little timber rattler. And he just reaches down, and he picks it up like it's nothing, and it wraps around his arm, and he starts talking to it in a language I don't understand. And... He he just says basically that I'm glad, you know, the snake was home, and uh, he let it go. And as he let it go, it slithered off, and he says, the thing about snakes is they don't know if they're male or if they're female. They don't know the truth from a lie, but they're very wise. And if you don't look at them directly, they will show you which path to take. So we just kind of watched where the snake went off to out of the corner of her eye. And eventually, you know, after a few minutes, you know, we followed after it into the brush. But uh, it was after that that he gave me my name. And uh, he referred to me at that point as Zashi, Little Snake. So, you know, that was a, a very important experience for me. You know, to see him actually do that, like, you know, it was no big deal. <laughs> Yeah, I have a lot yeah, of memories, that, you know. You really made uh, uh, Charles a wonderful character in your book, and uh, naturally, I, I really envy you having known him because uh, 
a person like that is worth their weight in gold. I had a master, Frederick Adams, who was a naturalist and uh, was the, the founder of uh, of Fer- the Ferraferia, which Lady Joe Carson is now the avatar of, or avatrix. And Fred and I used to hike up in the San Gabriels. And Fred would point out all the plants to me and teach me the plants and the aspects of the mountains. And that was something I just treasured, you know, those those long hikes with, with my master Fred. Whatever I learned about uh, about California plant life, you know, and, and, and the wilderness, I learned from Fred. And I, and, and I really treasured that. And, of course, he passed away in 1980. But we remember him very, very well. Anyway, is there anything you would uh, you would like to uh, you would like to discuss with us uh, while we still have some time here in the hour? Yes, um, I, w- I would like to just uh, digress for a moment and touch on something important that you s- had mentioned just a few moments ago about having you know Western occultism needing to have that. How did you phrase it? An Eastern oh, influence. Pardon. Uh, I'm sorry for the squeaking. That's my hearing aid. I'm an old Special Forces demolition man, and I I set off way too much demo one afternoon to get to get home from the range early, and I I haven't heard very well since. And so now I'm you know in my 80s, and I and I and I have to wear hearing aids. So so they, and they squeak a little bit. So I, I apologize for that. Anyway, you you were saying yes. Um, you had mentioned about. You know, uh, Western occultism needing that infusion of uh, the Eastern aspect of it, or you know, shamanism or some Eastern thought, and I would wholeheartedly agree with that. And I think anyone that has has practiced uh, the arcane or the occult, uh, however you wish to term it, at some point. They will find that they're going to hit hit the ceiling and a plateau, and regardless of what they do, they're going to get frustrated because they're not they don't seem to be able to advance any further. And certainly, I encountered that, but I found that when I was working with Charles, that the masculine aspect of the Western thought you know, was what was holding me back. And I needed that infusion of the Native American thought, which was more feminine, more nature-oriented, in order to, you know, I had to meld them uh, in order to be able to, to move forward and advance. And it happened pretty quickly once, you know, I was able to do that. And it has made a huge difference. I mean, it's just like with anything else. You can only go so far by yourself, but if you're working with someone else as a team effort, working in harmony and working in unity, then you can achieve far more than you can alone, you know, by yourself. So I thought that was was pretty significant to bring up. Yes, it was, and I recall... Uh... In, in your book, you talk quite a bit about, about the differences in the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere of the brain. And, of course, uh, the right hemisphere, as we know, is female, and the left hemisphere is, is male. And one of the main purposes of magic, and especially especially the hypnotic aspect of magic, is to get the two hemispheres to talk to each other. 
Exactly. And that's why, you know, if you want to make a Masonic connection, the brothers are familiar with the pillars of Boaz and Jachin. Uh, Boaz is the pillar of strength. Jachin is the pillar of wisdom, I believe it is. But anyway, it represents, you know, the masculine and the feminine. But you've got the third pillar, which is the one that brings the the one of compromise, the one of harmony, that brings the two together and blends them to bring the best of the both of them out. So again, you know, this falls back to our body being an electrical system, and using you know both the positive and the negative forces. Uh, and you have to have that neutral ground in order for it to function correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that the West, that the problem with the Western tradition is that it is it needs more of this. Uh, uh, well, let's not say feminist orientation because that's been overdone, especially especially in recent times. But let's say uh, more of a of a kind of an androgynous uh, unity where both hemispheres of the brain are working together. And uh, one thing that you equated the Holy Grail with, well, it seemed like you equated the Holy Grail with uh, finding the spirit of Charles on top of the mountain, but I think that uh, we equate the Holy Grail with in the Western tradition with the uh, what we call the conversation, uh, knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel. And that actually, though, according to Hermes and Agrippa and and Solomon, that's three angels, you know, two astrological angels, and the one angel stays with you through all the incarnations. Yet in the only way you're going to reach those those angels, the only way you're going to reach them is by going over into the right brain. They live and they communicate with you through the right brain, and uh, you have to master the a dialogue between the two hemispheres in order to in order to achieve that inner self knowledge higher self knowledge exactly you know it, you know it, it comes back to you know the the seven universal principles or the laws some folks refer to them as the hermetic principles but i don't know if they're hermetic or not they have hermetic applications but i think they're more than anything universal And in this regard, again, we're looking at correspondence and gender. Um, It's just like with the magnet. If you put two uh, north ends together, they're going to repel one another. If you bring a north and a south together, they're going to attract. What we have to do is find the medium, the compromise, you know, which is somewhere in the middle, that sense of balance and equilibrium. And we can look at a number of things, you know, whether it's in society, you know, we have too much feminism. If you look at most of the religions, you can say they're too masculine. But what it boils down to is that there's too much emphasis on one gender than another, and as such, they're out of balance. So what we need to do is bring them back into balance by you know, increasing the amount of the opposite gender. Well, we like to say that um, man creates with the uh, with the wand, letters of fire, and, and divides with the sword, and the woman nurtures with the, the cup and feeds with the pentacle. And therefore, 
all tools of the art should be mastered by both male and female. You, everyone, all magicians, male and female, should have a wand and a cup and a pentacle uh, and a sword. They all should, and they all should master them. And by mastering those 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 hermetic elements, you are joining the two hemispheres of the brain and the, and the two parts of the human. And and uh, of course. All of us have a, like Carl Jung said, you know, we all have a, a side of the opposite sex. Women all have the anemus and, and men all have the anema. Part of your individuation process in Jungian terms is uniting them. Exactly. You know, it's the union of opposites. And yeah. the union of opposites is central to the cycles of nature. And that's pretty much what we're dealing with across the board. You know, whether it's, you know, in a microcosm as man on earth or if it's in a macrocosm of the earth within the solar system or the universe, it all comes back to, you know, the divine spark, which emanates from the union of opposites, male and female. That's right. And, of course, in the East, they, uh, the dollars especially, they use the yin-yang symbol, which which works out very well in, the, in explaining that. Anyway, we're just about down to the end of the hour, and I want to tell you that I really, really have and enjoyed having you on, Richard, and I want to stay in contact with you, and uh, I want to recommend your book to all all of our listeners. It's Inner Traditions. I'm sure you got it on Amazon now, don't you? Yes. I want to have you back on later because you've got another one you're working on on the Knights Templar, and when you get that one, we sure want to have we we sure want to keep follow, follow up on on that one with you. Well, so when you get ready to uh, you know to get that one out, uh, you, we certainly want to want to review it. Anyway, thanks again for coming on, and, and you're one of the best guests we've had this year, and uh, and for for any year as far as that's concerned. I'm very pleased, and uh, all you folks out there in uh, Hermetic Magic Land, we'll be back next week with another exploration of the Hermetic Mysteries. And uh, until then, goodbye and good night and good magic.